everyone, I'm Brad Stone, in for Emily Chang, and this is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. As head of our global technology coverage, I lead a team of about 55 reporters and editors around the world working on stories ranging from the culture inside SoftBank's Vision Fund to the inside story behind Amazon's HQ2 fiasco. I was super excited to fill the anchor seat for this episode because before becoming CEO of Intel, Bob Swan was the CEO of an online grocery delivery startup called Webvan. Webvan blew up spectacularly during the height of the dot-com boom, but its history is relevant for a new book I'm writing about the last 10 years at Amazon, where it's really tried to correct some of the big mistakes that Webvan made. After Webvan, Swan stayed in tech, working at eBay alongside Meg Whitman. After overseeing the eBay PayPal split, he joined Intel in 2016, first as CFO and then interim CEO, following the sudden resignation of his predecessor, Brian Krasanich. He was then chosen for the role permanently about a year ago after the company conducted an extensive search. Here's my conversation with Bob Swan, Intel CEO on Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Tell me what you were like as a young kid growing up in Syracuse, New York. I grew up with um, with eight siblings, all in pretty tight range. Where were you so in the I was right span. in the middle. Okay. So I had the opportunity at a very early age to learn from eight different siblings about how they think. What did your parents do? Uh, my dad started a uh, Swan & Company. A jewelry store with my uncle. Two of them started Swan and Company. And so they were entrepreneurs. For, they were entrepreneurs. And my mom was um, was a kindergarten teacher for thirty plus years. Did you travel? Did you, did the family no, take international kid? vacations? Or? No, no, no. We drove to the Green Lakes, which was like fifteen minutes away, and that was a big trip. No, nine kids. Right. We couldn't barely fit in the one car that we had, um, so I didn't. I jumped on a plane for the first time, I think when I was 25. That's remarkable. Do you remember where you were going? Yeah, yeah. From Binghamton, New York to uh, Philadelphia. This is when you were at GE? I was at GE, yeah. Fast forwarding a little bit, you came to Silicon Valley right in the in the heat of the dot-com boom and then the bust, right? You became CEO briefly of a company that was almost synonymous at the time with the dot-com bust. To what extent did that turn you off to Silicon Valley? Not at all, um, but it was a bit humbling. And I would, you know, think about, I had um, I'd spent 16 years in what I'd considered at the time the best company in the world, um, which was GE. But at the time, in the late 90s, um, uh, you know, we started inside GE this thing called destroyyourbusiness.com. So it was the chairman at the time, Welch's way of kind of turning inward and say, hey, we need to innovate. We need to think differently, think bolder. And I got into that in the late 90s when I was in the lighting business. And from that, I thought both um, uh, professionally and personally, I realized now's a real chance for me and my family to do something different. So in 1999, when you're in the midst of thinking about destroyyourbusiness.com and how it will disrupt the breadth and depth of what GE had to offer, um, I thought, I, if I go out west to Silicon Valley, um, I know I'll accomplish one thing. I will never compare it to GE. So I joined a startup internet company in the height of the bubble called Webvan, and in so many ways failed miserably. 
and in so many ways benefited tremendously from trying to create something rather than being part of something that was created long before I got there. And then, of course, you spent nine years at eBay as CFO. When the company was sort of very acquisitive, there were, there were some acquisitions like the Skype deal, you know, that maybe didn't work out so well. Of course, then you, you were responsible for spinning out PayPal, obviously a big win uh, for the company. But what, did, what you know, lessons did you take from the eBay experience in terms of sort of focusing on the core market or looking abroad for growth? In eBay, we had so many opportunities to say yes. And we had a lot of opportunities where we had to say no. And if something didn't work based on its original premise, we had to be okay letting it go and in some ways dust ourselves off and go and try something I else. I guess when you look so, back at those years, should you have been more selective? By definition, anything that we did that didn't quite pan out the way we thought probably could have done something different. But that being said... You know, in these technology industries, you got to be prepared to invest. You got to be prepared to take risk, and in doing so, you got to be prepared that everything doesn't work out. And if it doesn't, what do you learn from it? So, in that sense, yeah, I mean, there's things that we did that, with the benefit of hindsight, um, no. But um, I think the challenge in tech and in, in my role today is how do you take calculated risk? You know, the opportunities are endless. There's, it's not, um, it's not where can you grow because there's lots of opportunity for grow and I just think you have to, um, I've learned you have to open up the aperture a little bit and be prepared to take a little risk. So we'll talk about where you're taking risks now at Intel. Um, I remember a year ago, my colleague Ian King was writing about the, the leadership transition. Your predecessor had stepped down. You became the, the temporary CEO and he reported that you told employees that you didn't want the job permanently. What, what were you thinking during that time period? <laughs> um, well, first I was thinking that I absolutely loved the job I was in. And um, I had been, um, been a CFO for 20 plus years. Um, I had this wonderful opportunity to join this incredible company. And I loved the role of the CFO. I mean, I didn't really have aspirations to be in the CEO role. I loved the job that I did. And then that evolved a little bit over time. And um, during the interim period, as the interim CEO, which was six or seven months, I, um, this will be corny, but in some ways I love my job as a CFO. I fell in love with the company um, in that interim period. And um, so um, when the board came around and asked me if I would uh, entertain it, I was, you know, I just felt, uh, you know, humbled, honored, excited, overwhelmed, um, and um, thought, what a great company and what a great honor. So I didn't start out that way. I loved my job, and I fell in love with a company that I think has a real purpose and a real role to play in the world. You're also a sort of non-technical CEO, and you're a relative outsider. Was there any kind of internal resistance to the CFO getting the job? I mean, we are a technology company, so the, the technology blood is very strong. I would not have taken the job if, during the interim period, I didn't feel in some way, shape, or form um, embraced by the technical community. You're listening to my conversation with Intel CEO Bob Swan. Up next, we break down Intel's complex relationship with big tech plus the impact of the U.S.-China trade war on the global supply chain. 
I'm Brad Stone, and this is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Is Intel still a chip company? Would you describe it that way? I'd call it a, a data company. You know, we, we talk about uh, you know, going from a PC-centric company to a data-centric company. And by that, I mean um, software and a variety of different chips are enabling the ability of technology to meet this insatiable appetite for consumers and businesses to create more and more data and make it more and more relevant. Intel had a, had a moment where some customers like Dell and HP were complaining about production problems, right? They wanted more supply. And you actually had to apologize. Well, I mean, our, our desires and ambitions, as I said, are to play a much larger role in our customers' success. And today, um, given the breadth uh, of the things that we do, we play a pretty large role. They count on us. We constrained their growth by not having enough supply to meet the growing demands. We've added you know, over $14 billion in revenue to the company. The growth and the demand for our high-performance products was higher than we had anticipated. And the capacity to put in place to meet that demand, we didn't get after it as quick as we needed to So be. is that so, a failure of forecasting or of, of production? Well, I think it's, uh, the challenges were demand for our products were bigger the amount of products we made were much broader. And our process technology, what we call Moore's Law generically, but 10 nanometer more specifically, moved out to the right. And as a result, we had to add more performance by building larger chips. Larger and by moving chips under the consumed. right, it, was, it took longer to get that production up and running, and so you had to go back to the previous generation. Yeah, go back to the previous generation. So to deliver performance for our customers, the chips were larger. Larger chips consume more capacity. And in parallel, we had to build more facilities. We expect to add 25% more next year. And third, we're building out shells uh, around the world. So in the event there's a spike in demand, we can respond to those much quicker than we ever have. Do you feel like you lost trust with customers? I think we put them in a very awkward position. And um, yes, I, I, I feel like personally, um, I told them we'll be there for you and we were short. So we need to reestablish that trust and make sure they understand that when they make decisions on um, who they're going to hang around with that we're there for them and they don't have to worry about us. Speaking of customers, uh, Microsoft, Amazon, and Google are these, these hyperscale cloud companies. They use Intel chips in, the, in their data farms, but they're also talking about building their own processors and they've all acquired companies. To what extent is, is that a competitive threat for Intel? I mean, I think it, to the extent that um, any company stands still, including Intel, um, you, by definition, move behind in a world where everything's changing. So you have to innovate, um, um, whether it's OEMs, PC manufacturers, uh, data center companies, automobiles, or factories. Uh, we have to continue to innovate. And if we don't, somebody's going to fill the void. So what's key for us is continue to innovate and make sure that the things we're investing behind are delivering more and more performance for our customers and our customers' customers such that 
they don't worry about um, being a data-centric company. They worry about serving their customers, and they leave the chip and the software and the capabilities to us. So we have to innovate. But in, in these three explicit cases, they're not leaving it to you, right? They they see the same you know competitive needs and feel like silicon could be a competitive advantage. I mean, do you wish that uh, you know they'd leave it alone and just use Intel chips, or is that just unrealistic in this environment? You know, in so many ways, um, the amount of innovation and even investment in the semiconductors and silicon is somewhat encouraging. And it's encouraging because lots of smart people, um, whether they're customers or whether they're investors uh, looking at startups, there's, there's a lot of money flowing into this, this semiconductor industry and the silicon. And to a certain extent, um, as a company with a mere 30% share in a large market that has incredible demands for the things that we do, it's uh, reinforcing reinforcing that people are investing in the things that we're pretty good at. So we have to move faster, we have to uh, solve customers' problems, maybe customize our CPUs as opposed to selling general purpose compute. But we need to be solving their problems at a time when the demands for data and compute uh, continue to grow. So Bob, I have to ask you about China. You have been a voice of reason uh, urging the Chinese and the U.S. governments to engage in constructive dialogue. We're still in a trade war. What impact has it had? For a global company, we have a huge R&D and manufacturing presence here in the U.S. So winning in markets outside of the U.S., creating value for our customers and making money gives us more capacity to invest here in the U.S. in R&D and fab. So we've all had to adjust and, and adapt in a variety of different ways. And I say that meaning um, we, have a, we, we play a large role in China. There's a big consumption market for us, both on the PC and on the server side. Um, we have a reasonably large manufacturing base, and we have a large uh, chunk of employees in our design centers in China. So it's a very important market for us and for our customers in many ways. So we've had to adjust and adapt our supply chain to uh, have flexibility to allow some of our OEMs to move their assembly so they don't have to deal with tariffs. We've had to stop in some cases um, as export control laws evolve and change, we've had to stop shipping to some customers. So our priorities and our focus are about uh, retaining market access, protecting our IP, and adjusting and adapting to the rules of the road. How serious is the risk that in response to the trade war, China could double down on the development of its own indigenous chip-making capability? Is, is that, I know they're nowhere close right now, but over the longer term, is that a, a threat to Intel? I look at it in a slightly different way, whether it's a hyperscale with incredible capabilities, um, whether it's uh, venture capital going into semi, um, um, whether it's uh, China building their own capabilities. For, for us, it all leads back to the rate and pace of innovation um, to continue to defy the odds and do things that nobody else can do, such that when they have to make these decisions, um, Intel 
and the role that we play in the world is near the top of their list. But that presumes they're, they're thinking rationally, and they may be, but another sort of irrational aspect is going to enter into their thinking, which is kind of national security and national independence. So is it more realistic that China develops a chip capability because of all of, all of these global tensions? You know, in so many ways, we have to focus on things that we can control. But, you know, we also focus on things that we can control and influence. And along the way, I still come back to the same answer. Um, pace of innovation to deliver things that nobody else can do is the best path um, to continue to trajectory for the company. Speaking then of things you can control, have you moved any production out of China? I know you have, I think, some memory chip production in, in China. So we have a very uh, global footprint in the U.S., um, predominantly Israel, um, uh, Ireland, that's our fabs, in, uh, in a fab in uh, Dalian, which is our memory fab. And then we have assembly and tests in Malaysia and Vietnam and China. So we have a very global footprint, so we have the flexibility to adjust and adapt to where we make things uh, um, around the world. So, um, so far, we, you know, we have diversity in our footprint. It's, uh, we call it a virtual, virtual factory. So we always have the ability to move things around to optimize, uh, create opportunities, and manage risk. This is my conversation with Bob Swan, Intel CEO. Coming up, the future of autonomous vehicles and Intel's work in Israel to accelerate the adoption of self-driving cars. I'm Brad Stone, and you're listening to Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Stay with us. Let's talk about the future. So in, in 2017, Intel bought an Israeli company called Mobileye for $15 billion, sensors for driverless cars. I know you've taken rides in, in, in Mobileye. How close are we to that bet paying off for Intel? Uh, it's paying off now. I mean, we're two years in. We couldn't feel better about uh, not just Mobileye as a business, but the role that Mobileye and that team plays in the ecosystem of a market that is going to be significant for us. We are leveraging data to make maps better and better, which creates more and more opportunities to get more data, more and more data. We can monetize it in new and different ways. We're going to enter into mobility as a service in conjunction with a partnership that we have in Israel with VW, a company called Champion Motors, Intel Mobileye with the Israeli government to solve some of the problems of congestion and safety on the roads in Israel. And that will, we believe, lead us to autonomous driving. There's been a little bit of a sense lately that that autonomous future might be farther out than we all imagined? Is that skepticism unwarranted? Do you think we'll be seeing full autonomy, say, in, in the coming decade? <laughs> it's, I was going to say it probably uh, depends on where you started. I think during the course of 2025 to 2030, um, we will see autonomous driving. We think the technology we're building will be an accelerant of the adoption of uh, technology for autonomous driving in increasingly safe environments. 
Another development that will be impacting Intel's future is the opening of this very large new fab facility in Arizona. You guys have been working on this for a long time. Tell me a little bit about the Chandler, Arizona fab and how that will impact, say, the production problems we've talked about and the future of Intel. Currently, um, you know, our fab um, in Arizona pr uh, is a um, source of 14 nanometer equipment, so it's not an idle fab by any stretch. But that's the last generation that's of the, technology. That's kind of the, the current generation. We've expanded the facility. It's about roughly a mile long. We connected four different buildings almost into one. Probably one of, if not the most sophisticated manufacturing plant in the world. And what does that mean for, for your customers and for consumers? The 10 nanometer technology, in essence, allows for um, more transistors in a smaller and smaller space so that we can deliver more feature functionality, whether it's graphics, uh, longer, longer battery life, unique experiences. Um, that's what 10 nanometer technology will deliver into the PC environment or into the data center environment. For our employees, you know, we've added, um, it's one of our largest facilities. We have almost 12,000 people. Um, we've added about 2,000 people in Arizona over the last 12 months. So um, more Intel employees um, delivering more products for our customers. And I think, as you know, our employees play a huge role in the communities in which we operate in. and. Um, we have roughly 2,000 more of them in Arizona. Bob, we are in this environment of remarkably increased scrutiny of big tech companies. Uh, you know, it's kind of the consumer companies. It's, it's Amazon and, and Apple and Google and Facebook. But Intel went through this in, in the 2000s, right? There, were, there, were, there was a New York State uh, antitrust case. There was an FTC case. Uh, some, a private case. Now, this was all before your time at Intel. Uh, but what do, you, what do you think, you know, the lessons are for big tech companies right now? I, mean, I think at the most macro level, um, you've got to be a good citizen. The, the uh, responsibility we play for designing and building technologies that have a real positive impact on the world, um, you have to have a, you have a real responsibility to ensure that those technologies are being used for the better. You've been a member of the Silicon Valley community now for a while. Do you think the tech industry has understood that responsibility well enough? For the most part, yes. I mean, I do think that companies know that technology, with development of technology, comes a sense of responsibility. And yeah, I do think that my peers and um, um, in my neck of the woods understand the responsibility that comes along with changing the world with today's technologies. Are there moonshots at Intel? Sure. What are you excited about? It's hard not to be excited about um, uh, autonomous driving. You know, the impact that it does have on society. You know, congestion, you know, if you talk about the role of tech and CEOs, um, congestion, fewer cars operating 24-7 to reduce congestion and save lives is extremely exciting. And we're in the very early stage of that. We made great progress, but um, as you said, whether it's 2025 or 2030, there's a little ways to go in terms of fully autonomous vehicles. That's, that's very exciting. So, Bob, earlier in the discussion, we talked about the kind of inadvertently messy succession process 
that brought you into the into the CEO chair at Intel. Not to usher you out of this job, but uh, as we wrap up, what does the next succession at Intel look like? The next the next CEO. That's right. Can you give me a break? <laughs> Um, but have you thought about that at all? Oh, of course. I mean, um, to a certain extent, one of the responsibilities of any executive, whether it's the CEO or the CFO, or is um, how are you building a team such that um, you can hand the reins off to somebody that can do something more special than you could have ever done yourself. So I think that's, that's a role of every executive. And so my role clearly is deliver on the present, Create the future, whether it's moonshots or whether it's, you know, how do you position the passing of the baton to the next generation of leadership? And um, so, yeah, it's a sense of responsibility that um, I think that the CEO and the board really play. That you have wonderful cadre of people around you that you encourage them, challenge them, learn from them, so that they can play at a different level. So ultimately, um, when the baton gets passed, hopefully not too soon, um, that, uh, that, co that that team uh, can take the company to a whole new level. Okay, Bob Swan, thank you very much. Bloomberg Studio 1.0 is produced and edited by Kevin Hines. Our executive producer is Candy Chang. Our managing editor is Danielle Culbertson. I'm Brad Stone, senior executive editor and head of technology coverage for Bloomberg News. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.